message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Good morning. I, uh, I try to listen as we go through worship because often the Lord is speaking in songs that we sing and prayers that we pray. And I was, uh, as we were singing, You Are Faithful, I thought about that statement. What does it mean? When we say God is faithful, I think what we normally think of is that God is faithful to me, to the promises he's made to me. But actually, I believe it means, from the scriptural standpoint, is that God is faithful to himself, to who he is. He cannot change. If you get to know the Father, you can be assured he will always act in his character. He won't act out of character. He will always act as God acts because that's who he is. And that is security. When we know that, when we can depend on that, that's the God that we serve. He's not changing from day to day. He doesn't move the goalposts, you know. It's always the same, and I appreciate that about God. I also heard in Jeff's prayer as he bargained God that I would reduce, if I had a 40-minute sermon, I'd reduce it to 30. So I heard that. I want to do is uh, I want to go to John, the Gospel of John. Uh, It's just you know what I'm grateful about the faithfulness of God. Also grateful about His genius, His genius. When you read the Bible, and and you see how God has constructed the Bible, it just comes out as sheer genius. And there's this surface layer in the Gospel of John that is genius enough. But there are so many underlying, like an onion, you just keep peeling it back and getting to the core of what God is communicating and the depth of it. It's just amazing. And one of the things that I see is, is of all of the objections, and I want you to think about the object, objections that people that you know have against becoming followers of Jesus Christ, against becoming disciples of God, against becoming born-again believers. What are the objections that you have heard in life? And I want to submit to you that if you'll read the Gospel of John with that question in mind, he answers almost every one of those questions. It's, it's kind of strange how you can find a different question answered in each chapter of John. Like the first one in chapter 1, and we've already had a message on that that I preached several weeks ago, that first question or, or objection would be is ignorance. I just don't know. Is he really God? And what did John the Baptist answer? Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. I didn't know, John the Baptist said, until I saw descending from heaven a dove and lighting on his shoulder upon his baptism. I didn't know who he was. But now I can tell you he is the Son of God, the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. And in chapters 2 through 21, there are other things that John says. And the one I want to focus on is chapter 2 today chapter 2 today. And the question is, what is it like to follow Jesus? Don't you think there are people out there that just don't know what it's like or they have a misconception of what it's like to be a believer, to follow Jesus, to commit your life to Christ or to surrender your life to God? And, And they're scared of that. They're actually afraid of what it would mean if I came to Christ, if I surrendered my life, if I began to follow him. What is it going to mean? And there's a great misunderstanding of that. And the first is I think that they 
they think that it means that his intent is to ruin your life. It's to just take all the fun away that you've been experiencing. You've been trying to make meaning out of your life. You've been trying to enjoy, find a little pleasure in life. And it's God's purpose to save you from that pleasure. You know? He wants to save you from having fun in this life so you'll be ready when heaven comes, just in case heaven's not as much fun as we think it is. There's all kinds of weird things that go through people's idea processes that bring them to that. But I have had a lot of people tell me, well, I'm just not ready for God. What they mean is I'm not ready to give up the life that I'm trying to live. They don't really have that life. They just have it in their mind that that's how life is supposed to be, and I'm pursuing that life. But if they would be honest, what does that pursuit lead them to? Disappointment, pain, frustration. There are a lot of things that it leads them to. But I think that that in the first chapter, as Jesus begins to gather disciples, and know that in the first chapter he's gathered six disciples by the time we're to the end of the first chapter. It's Andrew and John and James and Peter and uh, Philip and Nathaniel. Those are the six that he's gathered to himself in chapter 1. And you come to chapter 2 and it says, And the third day, the third day after he's gathered, right? After he's gathered these six together, whatever, how many days it took for that to happen, two or three days it took for that to happen, there are six of them going around together. He's calling them his disciples. And, and he decides then on the third day of this relationship with these six men that are following Jesus. And we don't really know. that He calls them disciples, but are they what we would consider disciples? Or, you know, are they all in or are they still just kicking the tires? You know what I mean by that? You ever bought an automobile and you wanted to act like you knew what you were talking about? You know, and, and you walk up and what do you do? Kick the tires. Sorry, Bob. You kick the tires. Or you look under the hood like you're going to know what you're looking at when you look under the hood. You look under the hood. Now, some of you are car enthusiasts, and you would be okay with that, but you know what I'm saying is that there are a lot of people who, even sitting here today, may still, in their mind, be kicking the tires. They're still just trying Jesus on for size. They aren't all in yet. If it works out, great. If it doesn't, then I've got in my back pocket an option. Something else I will pursue. Or I'll just go back to my old lifestyle. A lot of people are thinking that way. So the question for them is, they're still pursuing the answer to what is it like to follow Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was going to show a group of men what it was like to follow Jesus, I would not have intuitively done what Jesus does. It says that there was a wedding at Cana. And Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And so they become more or less wedding crashers. Now, these are six men, got you? Got you? Now, I know, Zach, you and a couple of guys are trying to figure out what to do with the men's group, right? And if you had an option of one weekend... We can all go fishing or we can all go to a wedding. What do you think you better choose? See? Pardon? Fishing. Yeah. How many of you have come away from a wedding lately going, I can't wait till the next one? At least the guys. I don't know about the ladies, but the guys are that way. Can we admit that? Is there anybody here willing to admit, oh, I love weddings? Nobody. 
But that's what Jesus does. He takes them to a, a, a wedding. And I can just imagine Peter at this point, right? And how he is doing and what's going in his mind. Who is this guy? The first thing he does is takes us to a wedding. But at the wedding, there comes a time that the wedding is going on evidently well. People, It's well attended, even more so than what they expected. And they run out of wine. And Jesus' mother comes and says, they were out of wine. And Jesus responds and says, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I know that's been theorized a long time of what that means. Jesus couldn't perform a miracle now because it would expose him for who he is. It wasn't his time to be exposed, and yet he still goes and does it anyway. I don't think that's what he means. All I think that he means is, and I want you to see the nature and character of Jesus in this, I think it's a little friendly banter between him and his mom. And he just looks at her and says, Woman, it's not my wedding. It's not my wedding. I'm not responsible for the wine. I didn't have to bring the wine. And, of course, mom being mom, what does she say? She just looks at the servants without even answering him and says, just do what he tells you to do. Now, that's a good plan to live your life by. Isn't it? Just do what he tells you to do. And then you, you won't just know what it's like to follow Jesus. You will experience. You will experience what Jesus is trying to do in this passage that we're going to see in a moment but just that idea if you love me keep my commandments if you're really my disciples the test of it isn't how much you know of what the bible says it's what you do with how much you know of what the bible says it's the culture of obedience that you produce out of your own life and that we see becomes part of the culture of the body of christ as we come together is not just coming to hear a message but taking steps to obey what we've heard or Act on what we have learned. That's God's standard of love. Whenever he tells us the two great commandments are love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that first one in loving God is caught up in obeying what Jesus told us to do. Just do what he said do. So Jesus, in response to what mom says do, he goes to the servants and he says, okay, I want you to fill these water pots. Now, these water pots were designed for the ritualistic hand washing. Now, people would wash their hands, but because God said wash your hands ritualistically, they'd wash them a second time. They would wash them to get them clean, but now they're at a wedding, right? So they don't have access to the toilet, so to speak. It's not even that age of that, but th this is where they're going to clean their hands in a washing. And they, the idea was they'd have a cup, and they'd dip it down into this water pot. So we know these are large mouth water pots. And the Bible says that they contain, uh, there were six water pots, and basically they contain, contain 25 to 30 gallons apiece in these water pots. So if you multiply that out, there could be upwards of, uh, of 150 gallons of water, all told in these water pots. And so they'd take a cup, and they would dip it down into the water, and, it, and then they would pass it from the right, the right hand and pass it from the right to the left and pour three times. One, two, three, switch, one, two, three. And then they had a blessing. 
they would lift their hands up, and as the water was dripping down off their elbows, they would be handed a towel, and they would repeat, Blessed art thou, Lord God, King of the universe, who gives us the commandments, who has sanctified us by his commandments, and who has commanded us regarding the washing of hands. That would be their ritual they would go through. And ever how many people were at this wedding, and there were enough of them to have depleted the main part of the water out of these six jars. So you can imagine that. Just do the math in your head as that's going on, or just do the crowd in your head. And each time they did that, there was a little bit of residue. Each time as they're scooping and getting into this water, right? And what does Jesus tell them to do? Refill the water pots. Now, probably before the wedding, they had rinsed them out. They might have even wiped them out. But over time, he, they, it doesn't say that they rinsed them or they changed them. They just went and got more water. And this is not something you fill up with water and put on your head. We're talking 250 pounds in each one of these plus whatever the pot weighed. Okay? So they left them sitting there, and they go and they get the water, and they bring it back, and they pour it in. And then he says, now dip out of the water and go give it to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet. Now, you can imagine you're a servant here, right? And you are part of the process of the hand washing and the over and over and over again and the lifting up and the dripping down over and over and over again, and we don't know how much silt was in the pot, but we know something was. My question is, would you want to drink out of that pot? Why? Because it's dirty from life, right? Your hands represent your deeds, represent your life, represent your actions in your life. And it kind of gives us a symbolism that in this pot... In this pot are the things about life that go wrong. You know, maybe not all wrong, sometimes right. But it's the dirt, it's the filth, it's the, it's the stuff we don't like about it. And we're washing it off. And whether or not there was a lot of silt or a little silt, I think the symbolism here is that in, in coming to know Jesus, the very things that we find offensive about our own lives are the things that Jesus wants to use to surprise and give glory and to magnify his own name. The very thing that you're ashamed in, in life, ashamed of in life will often be that which God uses to bless someone else's life if you handle it right, if you let God have it and transform it into your testimony, we would call it, into your story. God wants to use it to connect with others. God wants. I told the story this morning. I had a lady come into an office of mine in, in El Paso when I was in a church there. And she sat down and she was in tears. And she just told me, she said, my life has just been full of men. And I just said, I said, hold on. You don't even have to tell me. But God could never forgive someone like me. And I said, I want you to know this. If God can forgive me, he can forgive anybody. 
I don't even want to tell you in my life what I've done because I'm totally ashamed of it. But I can tell you this. There's nothing you have done that's any more of a sin than anything I have done. And in that place, in that moment, she accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in her life. Because when she came to confess, I couldn't condemn her or else I would be condemning myself. So what do I do? I share the love, the forgiveness, the acceptance of Jesus Christ, and she responds to that and accepts Him. And God wants to do that in every one of your lives. Whatever it is that you feel you can't share with anybody, and you may not ever be able to share it, but you can still let it be a part of your story, your testimony, of uh, so that... You can relate to that person that comes to you that says, can God forgive me? Can God actually let the things that I have done go? Well, no, he didn't let them go. He dealt with them in Jesus. He forgave them so that we can let them go. Let him have them. That's what he wants to do. No one here is any greater sinner than anyone else here. Now, we often think of it that way. That person is a lot worse than I am because I'm trying to justify my existence. But the truth is we know sin is sin. You break one of the Ten Commandments, it says you've broken them all because they're not Ten Commandments. They're Ten Points of the Commandments. point is jesus gave his life god so loved as jeff said a moment ago god so loved that he gave jesus his only begotten son that it, whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life now as i come back to this 150 gallons of water that jesus transforms into wine, they scooped the wine out, and I'm not sure that it looked like wine when they scooped it out because I'm just imagining I'm one of those servants and I'm thinking, what is he about to do? You scoop this out, they have to take it. I can just imagine every servant there has lined up to see the expression on the face of this master of ceremonies when he takes a drink of this water. And, and their expectation is he's going to take a drink and go, what are you doing? And they are ready, all together. Go, oh, he told us to do it. And they're thinking, he's going to say, well, my mother said, do this. But instead, he looks at the wine and he says, this is the best. And he goes to the master of the house and he says, most people hold the best Give the best at the beginning until everybody has well drunk and they're full and they're not really in the mood for more wine. And then they serve the lesser stuff. But you have saved the best for last. Isn't that also true about Jesus? It may be our last resort sometimes to accept Jesus. We've done everything we can do and still messed up our lives, and we finally come in surrender, in desperation, and say, I don't know what else to do, God, but, and we find that 
we have saved the best for last. Now, in answer to the question, does Jesus want to mess up your life? I submit to you that he turned 150 gallons of water into wine. He didn't mess up that party. He just got it going, right? Now, I'm not supposed to talk about that being a Baptist preacher and all, but you have to see it for what it is and recognize it. Now, I would not suggest to you, and and it would be against culture for a bunch of, of Jews who were celebrating a wedding to have a drunken brawl. That is not what they did. But I am telling you, They had 150 gallons of the best. They could have partied all week if they wanted to. And probably did. But even better than that, I'm reminded of a scripture out of Ephesians 5.18. Be not drunk with wine. We're in his excess. Rather be filled with the Spirit. Now, I want you to compare those two ideas. What is it that's appealing to a person of being drunk with wine? What do you notice about a person who is drunk? Y'all have seen a lot of drunk people around here. Because that was a response. (laughs) And some of it is funny some of it is sad some of it is violent some of it is you know some people are loosened up to a extent depending on how they react to it but the point of the matter is it is it it has a great impact on the disposition of the person and and Paul is saying take note of that and recognize when you give your life over to the spirit the spirit will have a similar effect on your life It's not a benign thing to allow the Spirit to be in control of your life. God wants to produce. And and in the Bible, wine is actually a symbol of joy when taken in the right manner. And what I would submit to you is if you think wine is full of joy, get the Spirit. What are the effects of the Spirit? Speaking to yourselves in hymns, psalms and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart. Remember the couple of weeks ago when the guy had the computer up there and he played the crickets? That, that reminded me of this passage because literally that speaking to yourselves in hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody, that means the sound of crickets, the grunt of an animal. It, it's just make la-la-la. Just make a noise, joyful noise to the Lord. It's what that means, literally. And I was so blessed by hearing that because of this scripture that that it creates this joy. The next verse says giving thanks. It creates gratitude. It sets you free from all of the things that you think are wrong in life because you can't be grateful and still be resentful. You can't be grateful and still be greedy. When you are grateful, it surrenders all of those bad things out of your life, even if it's momentarily. And then submitting to one another, it says. 
We no longer want our own way, but the effect of the Spirit on our lives is that we look out after others as being even more important than ourselves. If we tag that with Philippians 2, so we, we have that sense of the Spirit. And I just want to encourage you to find out what the will of the Lord is, find out what the effect of the Spirit is, and pursue that in your life and allow Him to have that place in you to be your initial source of joy, the place that you really go to when you're wanting a pick-me-up instead of turning to medication of some sort or pleasure of some other sort or whatever it is that you've devised in your life, hoping that that temporary, short, little bit of pleasure that you receive from whatever it is that you do, and it just fails you time and time again. You feel guilty over it. You don't know if God can still use you or if God will receive you. And realize that He has a better plan. He has a more potent thing for you. It's called His Holy Spirit. And He wants to... He places him in our lives and we receive the Lord, but he wants to allow him to expand, to unpack the power that raised Jesus from the dead into your own life. Following Jesus does not mean eliminating all the fun out of your life. If, if we allow the Spirit to take over when we receive Jesus... It brings the first fun you've probably ever really experienced in your life. The first joy you've probably ever really experienced because it's a joy that's not of this world. It's supernatural and powerful. second thing I would want you to learn from this passage of Scripture is that Jesus can be hilarious. He's actually about having fun. When he says, woman, it's not my wedding, that's a joke. You don't get it? Then you've got a poor sense of humor. Maybe I've got a poor sense of humor. But it sounds to me like he's trying to be funny and playing with his mom. Then the next thing, when he takes the water out of the water pots, I mean, he could have said, fill, out, fill up some clean pots, but instead he takes it out of the hand-washing pots and takes it to the master of ceremonies, and those servants are standing there expecting that reaction, and instead their jaw drops because he says, this is the best one I've ever tasted. Now who's the joke on? Timing is everything, right? In comedy, timing is everything. And Jesus brings the... To me, he's, these guys go home with their jaw dropped open. You will not believe what happened at the wedding at Canaan. And he expresses this to these people in the form of of their own joy of having that. And it says this, his disciples saw what happened and they believed. They believed. Matter of fact, we have a photo of what it looked like now, I assure you that has not been doctored or touched up at all. That... See, that's, that's the final thing I would say to you is that with Jesus, life is full of unexpected endings. Surprise. 
you want to know what it's like, Jesus doesn't want to ruin your life. He wants to give it purpose and meaning, but not just not just orderly purpose and meaning, but the fun that you've been looking for out of life, the joy that you've been seeking, the peace that has eluded you for so long. It's, and even as believers, sometimes we buy into the ritualistic, we buy into the legalistic, we buy into those forms of godliness that deny the power of God. And what I'm trying to get you to do is to genuinely pursue the presence of the Holy Spirit which brings that joy into your life and strengthens you. Strengthens you for the things in life that are going to still happen. Now, you know, I'm not telling you God is going to remove because you trust Jesus that God is going to remove the difficulties of life. I'm telling you that he's going to give you a source of joy that permeates even the most difficult times. That strengthens you to make it through even the most difficult times. Now, I would give you some steps that you should take based on what this scripture is about. I hope that you have learned these things, but I want you to, I want you to think that Jesus would have you tell your friends or your family or those people who are still hold out on him because they think if they receive Jesus it's going to mess up everything, that Jesus does not intend to take all the fun out of life. You can tell them I told you so. Or you can just take them to John 2 and explain it to them out of there. Jesus doesn't intend. And please do. I want you to think you've got somebody in your mind already that you know believes that. Maybe your own kids. Maybe a friend at work. Could be a parent. Someone that it's bothering them they're kind of in that place of, I know I need to do this at some point in time, but I'm just not ready to give up my life right now because I don't want it to be ruined. Jesus is not going to ruin their life. Second thing I would tell you to do in taking steps is do what he says do. Whatever he tells us to do, do it. That's how you love God back. Right? We know that. If you love me, John fourteen fifteen. if you love me, keep my commandments. That's how you prove you love God. And one of his greatest commandments is love one another. You love God by loving each other as well. And the third thing I would tell you to do is look for the surprise in Look for the surprise endings, the last-minute things that come and, and resolve themselves in ways that you didn't expect. Look for the surprise ending, the negative idea that you had of the way something was going to turn out and, and God rescues it out of the jaws of defeat. Look for the surprise ending. And 
and I want to say something especially to the men. It's to everybody, but I want to challenge the men in particular. Because we've kind of been here in our men's meetings and different things and uh, the call, the challenge that Pastor Darrell has issued to you as well. As, as Jeff was sharing that John 3.16 passage, God so loved, what, what would you be willing to sacrifice for others? But I would say to you that when you are in Christ, you are the extension of that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now you can change that to say, God so loved the world that he gave me to this world. He gave me. I am now the hands and feet. I'm the heart of God that so many people come in contact with on a daily basis. I'm the heart of God. I'm the embrace. Or they may interpret the rejection, the standoffishness, the uncaring. Maybe that's how God is if that's how they perceive him through their dealings with you. Something for you to think about. God so loved the world that he gave you to them. And, and, and that's how I want to finish up, guys. I want to ask if you men would come and pray. And of those ten things that are listed that Pastor Darrell preached on before, of the challenge, what we need to have our families catch us doing as men. One of them is evangelism. And I'd ask you to come and pray. And as you pray, here's what I want on your mind. I would ask you to think about the guys, the people you know, who need to know. Jesus doesn't want to mess up your life. He wants to save it, rescue it, and to give you joy where you have no joy. Would you come and pray? Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.